So Titus 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. Well, it's very good to be here. Thank you very much for having me. I was married here, right here, just ten years ago, so it's great to be back here. We were a part of this church family until 2007 when we went uh, with the church plant to Fulham. So it's great to be here, great to be here with friends, great to be here with people I've never met before as well. Great to see you. Well, if you could keep that uh, passage open that we've just had read from Titus chapter 3. And I want to begin with asking you a question. How productive have you been this past week? How productive have you been this past week? It's the sort of question that gets me thinking about my to-do list, at how many things I've managed to tick off over the past few days. Big things, small things. I measure my productivity on the basis of the number of ticks. And when I've got lots of ticks, I feel good about life. When I haven't got many, very many, I just feel a bit frustrated. I want to be productive. I don't know about you. Do you want to be productive? Certainly that's the desire of millions of people in this city, hurtling about day by day, trying to get things done. We want to contribute something positive to the world in which we live. We want to make our lives count. We want to do something constructive. 
something useful. And I take it, if you're a Christian here this evening, that's even more the case for you. You want to make your life count for Christ. You don't want to waste it. You want to be productive, useful for God. Which leads to the obvious question, how do I do that? How do I live a productive life for God in London today? Well, this evening we're taking a look at the third and final chapter of this letter that the Apostle Paul has written to Titus, a Christian leader on the island of Crete. The church was living in and amongst a godless culture, not unlike London today. And in particular, in this final chapter, he's speaking to them about how Christians in Crete can live productively, usefully, in a non-Christian society. And Paul starts off this chapter with verses 1 and 2 reminding them what a productive life looks like. Now, in our loo at home, we've got a book called I Used to Know That, subtitled Stuff You Forgot from School. And in it are things telling you about collective nouns and algebra and the sort of brief plot of King Lear. I've got to say, they assume that I learned a lot more at school than I ever did. But what Paul writes about here to the Christians in Crete, they already know it. It's not rocket science. It's not anything they or you haven't heard before. But it's here as a reminder, seven marks of what it looks like for a Christian to live a productive life in a non-Christian society. Have a look with me from verse 1. As we look at these seven marks, remind the people to firstly, one, be subject to rulers and authorities, to two, be obedient, three, be ready to do whatever is good, to four, slander no one, to five, be peaceable, six, considerate, And always to seven, show true humility towards all men. It's not a comprehensive list, it's representative. Now we don't have time to look at each of these, but let me just pull out three of them for us. The first one there, be subject to rulers and authorities. That's to say respect and obey the authority of those who rule over you. Now this in many ways is pretty countercultural. Okay, we might not be living in the middle of the French Revolution here, but there is a culture of cynicism, sometimes even contempt for those in authority. Now admittedly, those in authority don't always help themselves, but Christians are called to be distinctive. So when a traffic warden gives us a ticket, and we're furious, and we start writing that imaginary letter that normally remains an imaginary letter in our heads to the council, helpfully pointing out to them how absurdly petty-minded they are, how money-grabbing they are, how let's make 
life difficult for everyone they are. When those sort of thoughts go through our minds, it's not very constructive. We're not being subject to rulers and authorities. Now that's not to say we can't challenge politicians or hold them accountable. Of course we can. We live in a democracy and we have the opportunity and the right to be a part of the democratic process. But within that, we're to acknowledge the rightful authority these people have over us. And it's only when they ask us to do things that are contrary to God's will that we should disobey them. There's one. Be subject to rulers and authorities. Another one there. Be ready to do whatever is good. Be ready to do whatever is good. The opportunity to do good often comes unexpectedly, which is why we need to be ready. Sometimes to do small things that are good, helping a harassed mum with the buggy up some stairs, giving directions to a lost tourist in town, writing to the local council. Sometimes to do bigger things, taking time to chat to someone who's upset, needing your support. Taking on a job, a project that no one else wants to do, but you know it's a good thing to do. So often my instinct is to get my head down, avoid eye contact. I've got places to go, I've got to-do lists to get my way through, I've got my agenda. Now, of course, we can't do everything. But what is the attitude of our hearts? Are we ready to do what is good? Third, third thing there, right at the end of verse 2, show true humility towards all men. That's to say, be courteous, be gentle to everyone, men and women. That might be easy to people who are courteous and gentle to us. Not so straightforward if they're obnoxious or aggressive or condescending. You meet people like that all the time. There's probably someone in your head at the moment. Maybe someone at the office. But as a, as a Christian, our response is to be courteous, to be gentle to everyone. Things. This letter is concerned that Christians should do good. And here are just some of the good things we should be doing. The second half of verse 8, if you have a look on to verse 8, picks up this big theme of the letter. We read this, second half of verse 8. Those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. When we're devoted to do these good things, to being subject to your authorities, to being obedient to those we're under, ready to do good, avoiding slander, being peaceable, considerate, courteous, gentle, small things, everyday things, we're doing something that's excellent. Something that is profitable, that benefits everyone. They're the marks, amongst others, of a productive life. 
Now, I guess you're listening to this and you're thinking, it's hard to argue with that. It's hard to argue that. We, we might be quick to forget to do these things. And so we need reminding of them. But it's difficult to deny that this is not a good thing to be doing. But somehow we need more than that. Simply knowing what it is that we need to do is not enough. We need to know why. We need a motivation. We need to understand not just what a productive life looks like. We need to understand what it's based on. And this really gets to the heart of this passage. Now, the beginning of verse 3, there's a word actually that's missing there. It's the word for. We're being told to live like this for a reason. And the reason is this. It's there in amongst verses 3 to 8. The reason is this. You've been saved. You've been saved. Beginning of verse 5. He saved us. God saved us. In other words, you're to do good because you've been saved. Or put the other way around, you've been saved, so do good. Now I've got to slow down here because if you hear nothing else this evening, hear this. We don't do good in order to be saved. We do good because we are saved. This is completely countercultural. It's counterintuitive. Our default position is to think that we do as much good as we can in this life. And hopefully by the end of this life, we've built up enough good deeds to earn promotion into heaven. The Bible teaches something totally different to that. Christians are to do good because... They've been saved. And what follows here from verse 3 is one of the most comprehensive descriptions of salvation in the Bible. We've learned, we learn here what we've been saved from, saved by, saved why we've been saved, saved because, saved through, saved for and saved to. You'll see those points on the outline. You can fill them in as we go through. Firstly, we've been saved from our sin. Saved from our sin. Read with me from verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. This is what we're like when we are left to ourselves. It's like one of those before and after pictures, you know, on hair loss you get at the back of the newspaper. I'm afraid I've only providing you with the before picture here this evening. This is what we were like before we became a Christian. And verses 1 and 2 are the contrast of this, what Christians should be like now. Now, of course, the difference is not often as stark as this. I know non-Christians who in many ways are lovely people, who do lots of good things, but that's not the trajectory of their hearts. Nor ours before we became a Christian. 
For some people, sure, foolishness, malice, envy are in their infancy. For others, those things are more fully formed. I wonder, as you look at this, do you recognize yourself? Do you recognize yourself before you became a Christian, your natural heart in this description? We've been saved from our sin. Next, we've been saved by God. We've been saved by God. Verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Now one of the most popular films of all time is The Shawshank Redemption. It's certainly in my top five. I imagine it's popular amongst many of you. It's about Andy Dufresne, number one we're hearing down here. Andy Dufresne, wrongly in the film, wrongly convicted of the murder of his wife. He managed to escape after many years from prison. Sorry if you haven't seen the film, I've just totally spoiled it for you. (laughs) But I can't imagine there are many here who haven't seen it. He escaped from prison after many years. What he did was to chisel a hole through his prison wall, bit by bit, day by day. I'm sure you remember it. And I don't know if you remember where he left the rock hammer that he used to chisel his way out over all those years. He left it in a Bible uh, for the abusive warden to have a look at later, to pick up. And he left a note with him. And on the note, uh, on the top of the Bible, and inside the Bible was this rock hammer. On the note, he just wrote, salvation lies within. Salvation lies within. He was quoting back to this warden, something the warden had said to him many times. Now the trouble is, This is a very attractive idea. Especially when we see people abuse the Bible in the way that the warden does in this film. It's an attractive idea. Salvation lies within. Andy Dufresne got out because of his own spirit. Because of what he did himself. He could do it on his own. The trouble is, it's not true spiritually. It doesn't work. We cannot be our own saviour. We're up against far more than injustice. We're up against far more than prison walls. We need saving from our sin. We need saving from death. Which is why the Christian faith is such good news. We're saved by God who in his love and kindness and mercy appeared to us in Jesus Christ to save us. It's his initiative. We're saved by God. Moving on more quickly now. We're saved because of Jesus' righteousness. We're saved because of Jesus' righteousness. Do you notice there in verse 5, it first tells us what we're not saved because of what? Because of. Verse 5, have a look at it with me. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. The point is clear again. Our righteous deeds, our good deeds, are not enough. 
but they don't need to be enough. We're saved by God's mercy. And in his mercy, in his grace, his undeserving goodness to us, he declares us righteous through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who swapped places with us, dying for us, taking on himself the punishment that was our due, and instead giving us his righteous life. We see that in verse 7, that we've been justified, declared righteous by his grace. We've been saved through, next, saved through regeneration. The second half of verse 5, follow that with me. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. As I say, the catch-all term for that is regeneration. Regeneration, being reborn. Born again, made new by the Holy Spirit. It's an act of new creation. If you're a Christian here this evening, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And do you see here what we've been saved for? Verse 7. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. We've been saved for eternal life. There is a great future for those who have been saved. Eternal life with the God who made you, who saved you. And we are heirs to this future. It's ours to inherit. It's only a matter of time. And finally there, we've been saved to do good. Verse 8 again, this is a trustworthy saying and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Being saved to do good. I wonder, can you see here, you cannot separate the gospel from good works cannot separate your salvation from doing good. And yet, often there's a temptation to do just that. One way we can do it is to try and have the good works without the gospel. Some of you might have come across this book, Religion for Atheists, by the philosopher and atheist himself, Alain de Botton. You've got to be very careful how you say his name. The premise of the book is that you can enjoy the benefits of religion without actually having to believe it to be true. Let me read you the first line of the book. He writes this. The most boring and unproductive question one can ask of any religion is whether or not it is true. You get straight to the point. In other words, he argues in this book that you can keep all the good activities of Christianity, the values it promotes, the caring communities it produces, the good deeds it does, even though 
he says the gospel it proclaims is nonsense. And it's a popular idea. It's a popular idea in our society. And it might be one that you share. Maybe you enjoy being part of a Christian community like Christchurch Mayfair. You can see the many good things that Christians do in our city. You just just don't think much of the gospel itself. But can you see this doesn't work? If it's the gospel that leads to good deeds, then no gospel, no good deeds. But the other way we can try and separate the gospel from good deeds, from good works, is to try and have the gospel without good works. Perhaps this is more of a danger for you here tonight. You sort of see the gospel as this ticket to heaven. You're pleased to have it in your pocket. And you're happy to check in on a Sunday just to make sure it's still valid. But you don't want it to change you. You don't want to be transformed in the way that you live. But here's the thing. If the gospel isn't changing you, if this message of salvation doesn't produce in you good works, then there's something about this message that you haven't understood. See, maybe you struggle to be generous with your money and with your time. Well, you need to know in this message of salvation, how generous God is to you. How generous he has been in pouring out the Holy Spirit on you. Maybe you're judgmental. You're willing to help some people, but you're not wanting to help others. They're not deserving of it. Well, in this message of salvation, you need to know how much God loves you and came for you, even though you're his enemy. Maybe you're struggling with envy. You want what somebody else has, their flat, their job, their lifestyle, their relationships. Well, you need to know that you are an heir of God with the hope of eternal life. Maybe you're someone who struggles to be subject to authority. Well, you need to know that God is your Saviour and your Lord. Maybe you're struggling with self-control, with lust, with drinking, with food. Well, you need to know that in your salvation you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Maybe you long to live a better life, a more godly life, a more productive life, but instinctively you feel it's about trying harder. It's about making resolutions. Why can I say that more than anything, you need to turn to the gospel. You need to turn to these truths that we've been hearing about tonight. Listen to these words from the author and minister Tim Keller. He says this, The person who knows that he has received mercy while an undeserving enemy of God will have a heart of love 
to even and especially the most ungrateful and difficult persons. When a Christian sees prostitutes, alcoholics, prisoners, drug addicts, unwed mothers, the homeless, the refugees, he knows that he's looking in the mirror. Perhaps a Christian spent all his life as a respectable middle-class person, no matter. He thinks spiritually, I was just like these people. They are outcasts. I was an outcast. Do you see, the more we understand the gospel, the more we'll be changed by it. Yesterday, it was my son's sixth birthday party. It was an animal party. He loves animals. He particularly loves dressing up as a lion. He's got a lion costume. And sure enough, he got his lion outfit on and behaved much like a lion for much of yesterday afternoon, growling at people and generally being a lion. (laughs) Which was fine yesterday during his party. But today, at Sunday lunch, when we put out the roast chicken, that was not the time for him still to be a lion, even though he wanted to be a lion, as he growled at it and sort of wanted to grab off a bone and eat it like a lion. And when he does that, what I have to say to him is act who you are. You're not a lion. You're a person. Act who you are. Use a knife and a fork. Well, we need to act who we are. If you are a Christian, you need to act as a Christian. If you are saved, you need to act for who you are. We are loved, we are reborn, we are justified, we are heirs of God's riches. And so it's acts who we are. The gospel leads to doing good. And we can see this in a sort of counterexample, very briefly in verses 9 to 11, where we see an unproductive life. Read with me from Verse 9, we read this, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Here we have the marks of an unprofitable, a useless, unproductive life, and their foolish controversies, genealogies, probably arguing over their pedigree or their heritage, Quarrels about the law. Now what exactly all these arguments were over, we don't know, but they caused division. They stirred things up in the church there in Crete. But most significantly, they were not in keeping with the gospel, with the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Which is why Paul instructed Titus to deal with them in the way that he did. Verse 10, read it with me. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Do you see here, these people, by their actions, expose their unbelief. They expose their hearts. 
and we can be sure that such a person is warped and sinful. And so Paul says, have nothing to do with them. In other words, they're not part of your fellowship. They're not part of your church, so don't treat them as such. Now, this is not saying that anyone who does something divisive should be kicked out, excommunicated. The mark of a Christian is not a perfect life, but it is a repentant life, which is why we have those warnings, two warnings, two opportunities here to repent. Our beliefs shape our behavior. A sinful heart, left to itself, leads to destructive, decisive, divisive, unproductive behavior. A saved heart should lead to doing good. Which is why Paul closes the letter in the way that he does. Read with me from verse 12. Paul writes, As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. And this is the take-home message of the book of Titus. Learn to devote yourself to doing what is good. Christians are to do Good. They're to devote themselves to doing what is good. And in the Crete church, they're to start off by practically helping Zenos the lawyer and Apollos as they head off, probably on a missionary journey. For us, it could mean any number of different things. There are no doubt masses of opportunities to do good here at Christchurch Mayfair. Masses of opportunities to do good at work, in your homes in your families, amongst your friends. But here's the crucial thing. We're to learn to do it. To do it. We're to learn to do this. It perhaps seems a little odd to have that here. Why is he saying learn? Why not just get on with it? Well, I hope for what we've been seeing tonight that actually it's not a great surprise. If we're going to do good, We need to know, we need to understand, we need to learn our salvation. It's why throughout this letter, Paul emphasizes the need for teaching. It's why this series is called The Knowledge of Truth That Leads to Godliness, taken from the first verse of the first chapter of this book. So can I encourage you as we close to learn, to know, to grow in, your understanding of your salvation in Jesus Christ. To meditate on it, to pray about it, to talk about it, to study it in the Bible, to open yourself to it as it's taught. So that as we grow in our knowledge of our salvation, we will grow in the good that we do and so live productive lives for Jesus Christ. Well, let me lead us in a prayer as we finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel.
for our salvation which comes from you, for your mercy, your grace, your love, your generosity, for our renewal, our rebirth, regeneration, for the hope of eternity and the riches we will share with you. Please would you deepen our understanding of these things. Please would they shape everything we do, all that we say and think, so that we can live lives of service to you. Amen.